Now the lounge is full of farmers for the seven. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the inaugural edition of the Rocks Across the Pond podcast. It's a podcast about curling. Uh, my name is Ryan McGee. With me is Jonathan Havercroft coming to us from Southampton, England. Uh, Jonathan, uh, how are things in Southampton? I saw that the, the Saints are moving on in the FA Cup. The Saints won. It snowed. It was very exciting. So the whole city shut down with about an inch of snow. Aside from that, it's a pretty chill Sunday. All right. It's actually warming up here, so things are good. Uh, I am in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, I, I suppose I have to say Virginia since there's a Richmond in England as well as a couple in Canada. Uh, if there's anyone up north uh, who has wandered into this podcast. Uh, to give you guys an overview, um, I'm an arena curler. I curl at Curling Club of Virginia here in Richmond. Jonathan, uh, you curl uh, with the English Curling Association, I believe, in uh, in England. Yeah, uh, my club's actually called the South of England Curling Club, and it's based at the only dedicated good for curling facility in England called Fenton's Rink. Uh, but I do most of my curling up in Scotland these days. All right, and Jonathan is my former skip. He was the skip of one of my first... Uh, one of my first league teams at Oklahoma Curling Club in Oklahoma City. Jonathan was one of the people that got that club together, and I was one of the founding members in 2010 after the Vancouver Games. Uh, and we were inspired to kind of do this podcast. We're going to talk about uh, other people curling. We're going to talk about some of the, the, the high-end curling circuit. We're also going to talk uh, grassroots. We're going to talk about how to grow the game um, at your local club and our ideas on how to how to how to grow the game uh, and take advantage of things that happened in the Olympics. Uh, John Schuster from the United States uh, won gold. Surprisingly, I think a few people, including myself, thought that he could contend, contend possibly for a bronze, but made a run to the gold medal. Uh, I stayed up until about 4.30 in the morning watching watching the gold medal game, um, and it got people here in the United States excited about curling, and we have, we have ideas on how to grow the game from a grassroots level and how to hopefully get more people watching and participating in the game. Uh, Jonathan, what was your take uh, on the Olympics? Uh, we saw that, you know, it started with mixed doubles. Was that a new discipline this year, so a third medal event uh, in the Olympics, what was your take? Do you, do you think that it? I mean, was it was it successful? Is it something you'd like to see in future future programs, or is it worth having? Well, I personally don't like mixed doubles as a style. I've played it a few times. Um, like to me, to me, it basically strips out a lot of what I find interesting in the game. So I'm kind of a traditionalist in that sense, but. The funny thing was, like, my mom really got into mixed doubles, right? And she's not a curler at all. And aside from just that's the thing my son does, she doesn't really watch it ever. But she said she liked it way more than regular curling, right? So she thought it was easy to follow. I think that's partly because it's kind of a strategic snore fest. It's just come around, come yeah. around, and then run back. Uh, and, but she kind of liked it. So I, 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 my suspicion is that you see a lot of this in a lot of other sports, like in rugby. You've got rugby sevens now. Mm -hmm. Cricket, you got T20. It's a bit less in the North American sports, maybe arena football or something like that, where the game's stripped down to make it 
kind of high scoring more for a TV audience. I, I suspect it's kind of here to stay. I don't know if it will have much of a life outside the Olympic cycle, but uh, we're probably kind of stuck with it. Well, yeah, and part of that is your your four person team is really what what drives things to get to the Olympics, and then the the doubles partnerships are kind of an afterthought. In fact, we had a lot of doubles partnerships juggle uh, based on the Canadian teams that that made it as four person teams on the U.S. side. Um, you know, the doubles team still curled with their four person team, but that wasn't that wasn't the case in Canada. They wanted to spend a specific doubles team and I think I think they add they added this to try and add countries that weren't quite as deep to give them an opportunity to participate in the Olympics but you only had one country Finland that sent a doubles team uh, that didn't have a a women's or a men's team Uh, so was it successful in growing the game to other countries or are we still going to see the the same countries that we see on men's and women's side uh, play in doubles in the Olympics? Well, so a couple of things. I think it, it probably is if you look at it at the World Mixed Doubles Championship, because I think that's the largest. It's I think almost every association uh, enters a team now. It's got, like last year, I think it was in the 30s, high 30s, the number of teams. And, and so mm-hmm. a country like Qatar, which has basically no curling, can still uh, you know drag up two people, throw them in the world world championship so in that sense at the kind of what i call international grassroots level with the new curling countries mixed doubles is a really easy way for an association to start playing internationally you only need two curlers as opposed to four mm-hmm. for some countries that's a, even that's a struggle um i think in, ter- in terms of the strategies taken uh for any of the teams that's pretty interesting too because jeff stoughton basically bet the farm on shooters being what wins mixed doubles, whereas a lot of mm-hmm. other countries thought you needed mixed doubles specialists. And the fact that, you know, Holman and Laws, two of the best shooters on the planet, but basically no match time together, not really much experience playing the game, were dropped in and basically rolled through that tournament after one kind of opening day hiccup, I think shows that Stoughton's strategy paid off. So I'm not sure mm-hmm. what that means for the future of mixed doubles in its own discipline. Because, I mean, why would you spend a quad training as a mixed double specialist if at the end of the day the top shooters are just going to drop in and, and roll so that raises an interesting question there I think do you think you're going to see mixed double specialists in Canada too now I guess uh, John Morris is going to take a step back from four person curling and focus on doubles do you think we see him again in four years I, you know I think he's probably done uh I, I, I think like looking at him, what else does he have to accomplish? And it sounds like he's opening a restaurant, starting a family. Mm-hmm. I think he's definitely on to the next stage of uh, his life. I can't really think of like a high-level curler who took a serious step back from competitive curling and then came back later on. Like, I mean like elite, elite level. Normally when someone at that yeah. level says, I'm done, they may come back and play a bit. But, you know, someone like Dave Nedowin... I guess he kind of had a little second life with with Martin for a season, but normally when someone steps back, uh, that's it. So I, I assume that's pretty much the end of John Morris's yeah. competitive career, at least. Although you saw Richard Hart come back, and he played with uh, with Howard this last these last four years too. Yeah, that's true. Although I, I don't think that version. I guess they got back to the Briar a couple times, but it was kind of you know that that looked a bit more like a uh, a Glenn Howard kind of glory yeah. tour, right, rather than really being the elite elite teams they were late aughts early early teens so 
So staying with the Olympics uh, on the women's side, we did see improvement by the U.S. teams, by the U.S. team that, that went on the women's side. They just missed out on, on a tiebreaker. Uh, I guess the big story on there was the development of the Pacific Asia teams. Japan and Korea uh, you know, rolled through and faced each other in the semifinals. You saw Japan uh, win bronze and Korea win gold. Uh, so, it, you know, have we kind of seen the Pacific Asia teams? Are they here to stay now? Is that are they going to be medal contenders every four years now? Yeah, I mean, they, they, if you haven't been, you know, you just been watching the worlds the last few years. Uh, they have been kind of knocking, knocking at the door, right? So it's not pro- probably Korea winning a gold was shocking, but if you told me that either Japan or Korea, uh, and I guess Korea won the silver, but a Korea kind of kind of finishing the top of the table is a bit surprising, but. If you told me they'd meddled at the start of the the Olympics, either of those teams, I wouldn't be surprised. Perhaps the fact that both mm-hmm. did, with Homeland crashing out, was a surprise. But you know, I think I think the rest of the world has caught up, and uh, Canada's just going to have to to learn to live with that new reality. Yeah. And the in in your neck of the woods, the uh, the British teams on both the men's and the women's sides uh, failed to meddle. Uh, on the men's side, now how do they? How do they pick their teams? Is it still the great British curling sorting hat deciding which four people go and represent Britain, or did they have a playdowns this time around? I know they had. I know they did a best of three to decide who went to Worlds. So it's changed a little bit, and a lot of it's dictated by who the high performance director is. So the previous cycle, there was a lot of controversy uh, with Soren Gran was the kind of high performance director. He's a bit more what I'd call the European style, where there's a lot more kind of direct control from the coach over the lineup system, and he was had a lot more input. And so the big controversy from that quad was um, Brewster had formed a team that was doing very well internationally. Uh, British curling added Dave Murdoch uh, as a fifth, and then eventually Dave Murdoch assumed the skip role, and... Uh, Brewster was relegated to the alternate spot, so that was and that was kind of controversial, caused a lot of controversy at the time. Uh, Grand moved on to Russia, so he's been kind of coaching in the Russian program the last few years. And the British Curling Association hired Tony Zumak, who had been con- coaching the the British Paralympic team, but he's from Canada, and he's there's been a bit of a relaxing with some of those things, which I think perhaps back in North America, not enough of that's kind of known about. So, first of all, he's he's kind of made it clear that teams have, as he says, far more input into team selection or team membership choice. So essentially the coaches mm-hmm. now listen to the players in terms of who they want on the team. And really British curling would only speak up if it was something, I think, goofy, like somebody just not at the kind of international standard wanting to be added. And certainly like a lot of the teams that have formed have, uh, have kind of gone along that model. And then in terms of actually selecting the teams now, it's straight up order of merit point performance. So Smith and Muirhead, the two teams that went, had the best mm-hmm. kind of previous two years on the, the World Curling Tour by, by a kind of fairly fair shot. There was a procedure to challenge. And so both, um, both Murdoch and Brewster wrote formal challenges saying they didn't want to play a best of three. But Team GB looked at the stand and said, honestly, by the order of merit points, Smith had kind of cracked into the top teens, whereas Murdoch and Brewster were back in the 20s. So British Curling felt that on that case, there really wasn't much merit. And there really wasn't a basis for anyone to challenge challenge Eve's team spot because she was so far ahead being like a, a top yeah. 10 team for years. So it's it's order of merit over the previous two years pretty much is the, the way they went this quad. 
And then on the men's side, of course, John Schuster coming back from two disappointing finishes in Vancouver and Sochi uh, to, to win gold in Pyeongchang and bring bring the U.S. their first curling gold. Um, I mean, I can't I can't describe how proud I was watching that game unfold uh, because of what that team had gone through, what John had gone through. Uh, the previous two, the previous two cycles, and to see how things were kind of stacked against him to get back to Pyeongchang, and for him to go out on his own and earn his way back, um, that's you know that's something that a lot of people brought up to me was as the last Olympics came came around, they were saying why are we why do we keep sending this guy? He keeps struggling. Why do we keep sending him? Well, the answer was because he's the best we had, uh, and he earned his chances by going through. You know each of the roadblocks that were were set up in front of him, each of the new events that he had to win in order to get into the Olympics. So to see things come through the way they did for him was it, it was honestly emotional to watch for me. Um, a lot of that may have been the bourbon uh, at at one thirty in the morning while watching that, but it was it was very emotional to see this happen for U.S. curling um, after getting into this sport uh, in 2010. Uh, did you get a chance to watch the game either live or or see it taped? Uh, so I actually watched the semifinal game live with my men's team, and they're all Canadian expats. I remember saying at <laughs> the beginning, I don't know why. I just they're kind of like, well, obviously we're going for Canada, and I said, ah, I think I'm gonna pull for Schuster in this one. And I kind of explained <laughs> the Schuster history, and they were they just kind of thought, well, John, you're gonna be miserable because it's Kevin Cooey. And uh, <laughs> you know, as the game went on, they kind of came around to to Schuster's view. I mean, to the Schuster American view. Like, yeah, there's a story there, <laughs> and he's not. He's a bit of a punching bag in Canada too, because the only time yeah. uh, they'd seen Schuster is either the Olympics or in World Championships, and and John's a bit. I'd say he's a bit awkward on Mike sometimes. It doesn't kind of help his case. And so the Canadians kind of see him as the awkward American guy that the Canadians normally roll over on their path to domination. So to watch the upset happen and to watch basically Cooey implode uh, in the eighth end yeah. uh, and then just kind of watch Schuster just roll from that point on was was kind of pretty epic. So it was a fun fun match to watch. And the, the other one was the morning of... And the hotel I was staying in, the TV didn't pick up BBC, so I couldn't watch the the live game, and the, the Wi-Fi was crap, so I was stuck watching <laughs> the rock-by-rock rock shot play that you can watch on the WCF website. I'm not sure if you've ever kind of yeah. used that. So I was watching that, and uh, the five-bagger, I just couldn't... I was basically having my breakfast and just couldn't believe that this five-bagger was building up, and I was like, what? what is Adin doing? Why is he... It's clear Adin was going all out he, there, but even I thought he'd probably try a something to cut him down a little bit but so as soon as you saw the five bag you knew it was over but yep. Schuster with rock placement really lured Cooey and Adine into playing his game he kept Cooey and Adine from from kind of controlling the action and he lured them into in, into the game that that Schuster usually excels at yeah I, I would say he the, the one thing he got really good at was getting a lot of long guards up I think, mm-hmm. uh, and so I think that's kind of one of the subtleties that not everyone kind of picks up on. But nor, my rule of thumb is, as soon as you see a long guard go up, it's going to be a junky end. And both those games, kind of the key ends, they they got some long guards set up to kind of set up a pretty pretty junky end because a long guard really takes the the run back off the table, right? And that's 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 mm-hmm. Cooey's game. He's got a bunch of tight guards 
set up some angles and try some ridiculous runbacks. But both games, kind of Schuster set up the early part of the end really well. I thought Matt Hamilton was kind of key both those games in terms of getting, oh, yeah. getting good setups. And they didn't play – that team didn't play 100% those ends, but they always got something – out of all eight stones, they got something really positive out of it. And that, that kind of really put the screws on both Canada and, and Sweden. They got the key misses. He, he did a good job of giving them just enough rock to force them into trying more difficult shots than really they, they should have been playing. And he got, you know, he, he got half shots from Cooey and Edine when he needed them. And most importantly, he took advantage of that. Yeah. Yeah. No, he played, he played lights out. He made the shot, you know, I think his reputation was hung on him missing pretty makeable shots, especially in 2010. And uh, for people who don't follow curling all that close, they don't see the John Schuster of U.S. Nationals or kind of the, the U.S. circuit where he makes a lot of really big shots, right? He's a bit – someone was compared to Brett Favre where he'll, he'll definitely throw a brain fart, but he'll also make a lot of ridiculously <laughs> good shots too. And, and unfortunately, until the Olympics, he hadn't really done that on a big, big kind of stage. So that, kind of, that part of Schuster's game wasn't really known to anyone who wasn't a kind of U.S. competitive curling fanatic, I don't think. And so the game was on uh, in the Eastern time zone at 1.30 in the morning on a Saturday. Uh, 1.6 million people tuned in to NBC Sports Network, which is a cable network here in the U.S., uh, at 1.30 in the morning to watch that game. Uh, the only other game that I saw a specific number four was the Roth-Homan game, uh, which was on another cable channel, CNBC. Uh, that was 800,000 people watching a taped curling match from 5 to 8 p.m. Yeah. So to give, so to give you, you know, it's not really a comparison because it's a, it's a bad comparison, but to give you perspective on the 1.6 million people watching curling at 1.30 in the morning, uh, elsewhere in the NBC Universal family of networks that same weekend, uh, Liverpool West Ham had 354,000 viewers on CNBC at 10 a.m. on Saturday. Uh, the Watford Everton match, which was on broadcast uh, on regular NBC broadcast, which is available to a lot more people, uh, 904,000 people watched that. That was at 12:30 p.m. Eastern that Saturday, uh, and then on Sunday. Man U Chelsea, which is a huge, uh, obviously as you know, a huge soccer match, yeah. uh, that drew six hundred and eighty-nine thousand on NBCSN, the same network that aired um, the Schuster game, and then also on NBC, uh, another one of their, you know, NBC has the NHL contract in the Blues Predators game, which was like their game of the week at noon on Sunday, drew. 966,000. So the 1.6 million blew all those out of the water and those are properties that NBC has spent a lot of money on. Yeah. Um obviously it's the Olympics and TV is all about storytelling and the Schuster story really I think helped build the 1.6 million that that tuned in. So you know, I don't think you're ever going to see 1.6 million people tune into a curling match ever again uh, in the U.S., but it shows that if, if, if you present the American audience with a good enough story, they will, turn, they will tune in and watch this sport. Yeah, I mean, I think the big thing is, so you're right, it's storytelling. It's also, you've got to have something to root for. So when Schuster's playing as Team mm -hmm. USA, that's a natural, it is. you're going to root for them, right? I think... 
my worry about outside the quads is there's not many times or places you can have a cheer for USA thing, right? So I think they try to do a little bit of that with the curling night in America format, but yep. it doesn't really seem to fly. It's not, well, it's taped, first of all. It's like super heavily edited, which I think actually takes half the fun out of yep. it. And I, I just don't know what, how, what can you do be, between now and 2022 to, to kind of get not even similar numbers, like just numbers, right? People watching yeah. curling on TV. And curling night in America, um, you know, I think, I, th- I think that that product struggles because it, it, it's not a great product. Um, and I honestly, one of the, one of the reasons I think so is the rocks. Like you don't get, there's not nearly as much spring with the rocks that they use. Cause I think they, you know, the, I think they've done it at Duluth curling club. I think they've done it at a curling club, uh, outside of or in the twin cities but they're using club rocks so you don't get nearly as good of you know the shot making that you see from those high-end teams you know and and they they can you know the shot making could be there if they had you know better ice and 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 better rocks honestly yeah that's i mean the ping pong effect is is real having uh uh yes yeah, no, I coach the World Junior Bs, and they have their own set. WCF has their own set that's just set aside for that event, same standard as what I'd call the TV rocks. And it's just mm-hmm. you know, the shots that my, my boys should not be making, they're making with those lively stones. So it does make a bit of a difference if the striking bands are fresh like that. Yeah, and it, may, it makes a difference on TV because you do. You want to see those runbacks. You want to see cross-house doubles. Um, you know, that's what makes it exciting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think that's part of it. I also just think there's not really a compelling story there because it's not, it's like no. this weird floating out there event. It's not the Olympics. It's not a world championship. And the other, I mean, you need stories. You also need stars. So really the only star in curling in the U.S. right now is Team Schuster. Mm-hmm. And so really you've got to figure out a way to get more American-based curling stars. And that, that you, you know, it takes a while to grow a really elite curler. You can't just, you know, make one in two years but i mean you look at it you know the nba has foreign stars is it possible to introduce the american audience to some of these higher end canadian teams and get them following it for for the quality of play or does does it just straight up have to be there has to be a good team usa with a recognizable face in order to draw any kind of any any kind of interest. So, so I've thought a lot about this, right? So the sport curling's probably most like on the TV side is golf, which sounds or tennis yeah. maybe, right? Where you're cheering for an individual as opposed to uh, a city, like you just a city or a college or a place, right? So college football, yep. you're cheering for the alma mater. For you know pro sports, you're cheering for the city. And so the reason the Olympics takes off is because you're cheering for uh, Team USA. And then that gets you watching the curling and learning a bit about the game. My worry is that tennis and golf, like enough people do that to kind of build in a natural baseline audience. Whereas curling Mm -hmm. in the U.S., you don't really have that grassroots level to necessarily transition into someone sitting down on a Saturday afternoon and watching a, a bond spiel. Right, and perhaps then becoming a fan of the McEwen rink as well as the Schuster rink. Yep. And so until until that happens, I, I just don't know how you square that circle. The only the only weird idea would be to actually try and set up some kind of city based or regional based 
curling league, <laughs> but I just don't. I this doesn't seem to fit well. It, there's been chat about that in the past, right? Yeah. But it doesn't seem to fit well with the curling curling model, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, I mean, you kind of have that in Canada with the Briar. You know, you yeah. have you know people are going to root for Team Manitoba um, regardless of who has the Buffalo on their back. Yeah. Uh, or they're going to root for Saskatchewan. Yeah. Um, but you don't have that in the U.S. In the U.S., because you know we only had what is it twenty two thousand curlers before the Olympics, I think was the number. Um, because we don't have the numbers, you can't really do, okay, this needs to be Team Minnesota against Team Wisconsin against Team New York in the U.S. Nationals. Uh, we have to allow our teams to basically scour the country to, to come up with, with a, high, uh, a high-end enough team to, to compete on the world level. Yeah, so I don't know what the answer is there. I, don't, I mean, honestly, I'm curious if someone came along and tried to make a go of a pro curling league. Yeah. In the U.S. with city-based city teams, city-based teams, maybe something like a like a, you remember that weird uh, what was that team tennis format? Do something like that, like a continental they, cup every weekend. It with still cities, exists, right? With, yeah, the team tennis format still exists, but yeah, yeah. Do you do the continental cup where it's where where it's team Minnesota against team New York or yeah. or whoever else? Well, hopefully, hopefully we can get to that point as we grow the game from a grassroots level. I know. Learn to curls and beginner leagues are exploding, uh, at least here in Richmond, Virginia. And I know several other clubs have seen similar things just because of of what Team Schuster accomplished. Hopefully we're able to, to grow the game here in the U.S. Um, so moving on to, to Worlds, and that's another thing that hopefully will help build things here in the United States is the U.S. and Las Vegas hosting Worlds. Las Vegas has hosted what you mentioned before, the Continental Cup. Um, you know, is 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 the Vegas Worlds another opportunity to, to grow the game in the U.S. and introduce U.S. potential U.S. curling fans to, to these international teams? Or... Is it going to be similar to the Continental Cup where a lot of it is uh, Canadians coming to Vegas on vacation to watch curling and gamble? Uh, so I'm going, so I'll, I'll let you know. And yep. One of the things I'm curious about is actually how many people will be there saying they saw it on TV and saw it was in Vegas and just wanted to come. And to my mind, if you got... If even 10% of the audience is that, that's a pretty big win, right? Yep. People willing to basically say, ah, oh, I saw Curlin, you know, on TV, and this looked like a cool thing to actually go and pay 30 bucks to go watch, to watch a Curlin game live, right? Um, I think that actually those kinds of events might have a bigger future in the U.S. because in Canada, especially, the Briar and the Scotties are just giant parties attached to watching mm-hmm. curling, really. And, and half the appeal is the the party attached to it. It's, it's basically the closest comparison I can make is to a college football game where the tailgating sometimes bigger than the game itself, right? So it's a similar thing. And hopefully, going we on. can explain that to our yeah. Fans. yeah. Hopefully, we can explain that to the U.S. fans that hey, this is it's it's not just watching people throwing rocks. It's a party. It's a party, <laughs> and then the other charm of it is you end up partying with the athletes in the lounge after, right? Like I can't think of another sporting. Maybe at some point it gets too big. That's not possible anymore. But you know. Uh, Remember went to like a tournament in Victoria, kind of just at an arena back in the early 2000s, and I was outside between matches. And I remember Steve Gould, who's like lead at the time on Team Stoughton, mm-hmm. held the door open for me on my way back in as he was going back to the change room. And I'm like, what other 
sport do you go to a sporting event and the players like holding the door open for you <laughs> yeah it's 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 unique and you know we we explain to people at learn to curls you know that the social aspect and you know these people really are just like us and you know they'll sit that they even at the olympic level they'll sit down and have a beer after the game uh that you know that this is something you can do and you if you keep doing it you can get to that level yeah for sure <laughs> and still yeah. be a normal person yeah yeah i mean they, they all have to go back to jobs right they're still yep. unless schuster's i'm not sure if he's cashed in yet but he's probably got to go back to dick sporting goods pretty soon right so i don't know they've 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 got them They've got them on the road. It seems like nonstop. I know Matt Hamilton was saying at the Elite Ten that he was—he seemed like he was ready to go home. He was ready to to basically call it the season early and head and head home because they've had him on the road so much, which is good. Yeah. It's helped grow the it's helped grow the game. So Worlds is next. Um, from the U.S. side, neither of the teams that went to the Olympics uh, participated in U.S. Nationals, which was won by, on the women's side, was won by Jamie Sinclair, which is one of the high-performance teams, yeah. um, which is kind of the state almost named, state-sponsored is a really bad term to use, <laughs> but one of, the, the USCA kind of sponsored uh, teams won on the women's side. On the men's side, uh, Heath McCormick's team, which is the high-performance team on the men's side that was at U.S. Nationals, uh, lost to Greg Persinger, uh, which is a team uh, which was actually skipped by Rich Ruinen, and Greg Persinger threw fourth rocks. He had an incredible tournament, uh, so they will be heading to Worlds. Uh, on the women's side, that tournament is currently underway. Uh, I know Jennifer Jones in Canada is already 2-0. and And on the U.S. side, Jamie Sinclair is 1-1. One and one. You don't have a whole lot of teams back from the Olympics. Uh, the South Korean team, the Swedish team that won gold, and the Russian team, I believe, are the only three that also participated in the Olympics. Um you know, are those teams are those teams still going to be favorites in the worlds here, or you know, will will having participated in the Olympics kind of take it out of them, or will you see teams like like the Jones team kind of run through this tournament? I, I think the Jones team is is pretty heavy favorites. Like I, I watched both their first two games; they look in form. They didn't have; they're not they're not suffering the Olympic hangover. Uh, I think she's. I think it's part of just her personality is that she's just like let's reload and kind of keep going, right? Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, obviously Hasselberg, in some sense, she's. I, I'm not sure how she'll perform. Like, definitely, you could see burnout kicking it at some point, right? After you win a gold medal, yep. so that to me is their challenge. I think the Swiss team, Felcher's always going to be a threat, and then it really is a lot of other countries, B teams out there. Like they're mm-hmm. they're non Olympic teams. Uh, I don't know. I don't. I don't know. I don't know anything about the Chinese team. I don't really know the Japanese team all that well. Uh, it's Kim from Korea, so I, maybe they keep rolling. But again, you wonder if at what point burnout sets in there. Uh, I, it, like the Olympic year, Briar Scotties and Worlds tend to be not that great historically, right? It tends yep. to be like the, the top teams have already burned out. It's the end of the quad. There's a lot of teams breaking up, and so it. it, it there's a lot of times where like upsets tend to happen in those years, but uh, in this case, I think Jones looks really strong. So my hunch is she'll run the table, and then maybe a team like a Sinclair or uh, 
a Felcher kind of sneaks into the medal games, but that's my my hunch based off watching the first day and a half of curling. Uh, how do you how do you rate the the U.S. team in Jamie Sinclair's first world's appearance? Do you think they have a sh- even a shot at uh, at making the playoffs? Oh, playoffs! The playoffs for are sure. the, playoffs are different this year. Now it's not just the top four. I believe it's top six make the playoffs this time around. Yeah, playoffs for sure, definitely. I think they're definitely a playoff contender, especially with the new top six format. Uh, I, I don't, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I think once they get into the top teams, the top, you know, teams from the top 10 in the world, I think that's where they're going to reach their ceiling for now. But I, th- I definitely think Sinclair's rank is one for the next quad. Like, I don't like they're like, she's, mm-hmm. they, she's kind of getting all the opportunities to the high performance program, starting to post some good numbers in the kind of big events. I wouldn't, she's still pretty young, right? So I wouldn't be too surprised if a team like that is threatening for, for medals internationally over the next four years. Well, it, it wouldn't surprise me to see Sinclair and Roth battling in the, in the, in the best of three final for the next uh, Olympic, for the, for the right to go to the next Olympics. Uh, those two teams are, are, seem to be the strongest teams uh, here in the U.S. on the women's side. Uh, you mentioned the Briar. We did not have an upset at the Briar this year. Brad Gushu came in heavily favored as the defending champion in one. Uh, but to me, the story of the Briar this year, well, two of them. One was the emergence of Botcher and Epping uh, in Botcher's second appearance and Epping's first appearance in the Briar and the new format. How much of the Briar did you get to watch and were you as impressed as I was by the shot making of Brandon Botcher? Uh, yeah, I mean, Botcher's been like the, 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 the next one for probably the last three, four years, right? And it's like, oddly, I think Epping mm-hmm. was kind of touted as the next one a decade ago, but he could, and he's done well kind of on the slams and stuff, but it's never been able to get past Glenn Howard. That's been kind of his nemesis in, in Ontario. So I, I wasn't surprised that Epping made a deep run once he got to the Briar. And. I'd say only, my only thing with Botcher is probably if you told me this year, it may, might have been a year too early, but you never really know when a team has their big, big breakup moment. Like, like Epping, like I was told about Epping 10 years ago, right? And people were like, oh, Epping's going to win a ton of Briars. Basically, once he gets past Howard, it's over. And they were right, but it took him 10 years to get past Glenn Howard. <laughs> Who would think that Glenn Howard would still be a, a curling monster at 55, right? So. I mean, he may do it until he's 60. Yeah, he sounds, may be a monster until he's 60. He probably could be, I think. I mean, some of those old guys still do it. Like, uh, uh, Lukowicz, I think, made a pretty deep run in Alberta Seniors the other year, and he's, like, in his 60s now. And uh, <laughs> the Iceman uh, played against Jacobs in the Northern Ontario final a few years That's right, years a couple back, years ago. Right? And he's got to be in his yep. 60s, too. So I think especially the skip position, if you've got, like, a good balanced delivery and no knee problems, I don't see why you can't keep keep rolling for a long time yeah and then the other the other storyline at the briar was the new format they did two pools of eight and then you combined into a championship pool uh with a wild with a wild card entry because uh, they split up all the territories teams all three territories sent a team it, does this kind of, I mean, does this make the Briar less interesting? I know that they are trying to grow the game. I mean, they're trying, they're they're trying to grow the game just like the U.S. is. Uh, they're trying to grow it in you know places where curling, you know, doesn't quite have a hold like it does in the Prairie Provinces. Um, 
you know, did, does this format make the Briar less interesting? Because it seems like all the games were blowouts until the two pools combined. Yeah, well, so I guess that, yeah, the round robin, it's an issue, I'd say, or the, the first round, whatever they're calling it now, the preliminary round. I think it's an issue. Mm-hmm. I think part of that's just lack of parity at the moment in Canadian curling. Um, so I, I don't really know the way around that. I, I guess I really hated the relegation format. I do like the Briar. So did the players. Yeah. I think for the to me, the Briar's got to be every province and territory in. Uh, people crap on Nunavut, but, you know, the Cooey brothers came from Inuvut, Vic, and what's to say that's like the next curling kind of dynasty doesn't come from, from uh, mm-hmm. Nunavut, right? So I, I think kind of precluding a, a province based on past history, or Brad Gushi from Newfoundland, there's a lot, of, a lot of great curlers that have come from what's the Canadian curling periphery. Uh, to me, I actually didn't hate it that much. Uh, w- once you get to the championship pool, it kind of got rolling. I, part of me thinks the way to make it more interesting is to do basically one of two things. So one is actually go back to classic Briar and just cut wild card Team Canada and just roll with uh, 14 teams. Yeah, I, I don't think you need kind of like auto berth elite teams. I think this, the curling Canada's pushback is those two teams are kind of getting some more stars and raising the quality. So yeah. if that's the view. Then I, I think the championship pool is the stupid part to me. Uh, I would just go to top four out of each pool and then a double knock and just double knock to select your two. So the A winner gets right to the final with the rocks and hammer. B winner gets the other berth in the final. And you can you can do that pretty quickly in a weekend. And, just I, th- go and I think there. I when you when you came up with that concept, I think I kind of looked at it on because I think that the pushback would be um, the the number of draws because you have to have a certain number of draws because you're trying to sell the same number of tickets if you're curling Canada. Um, Because right now, I think you have, right now, I think you have the same number of draws as you did last year. And I kind of looked at your double knockout. uh, And if you do it right, you can have the same number, number of draws, because that would be that would that would be kind of the killer to that would be if you if you wound up with, with less draws, less draws means less tickets sold, less tickets sold means less money for curling Canada, right? They're always going to say no to that. And that'll make some of those weird preliminary round matchups mean a lot more. Like you don't you don't want to be lazy and squeak through, like sleep through the first round and come up with a four seed because that means you're playing the one seed in your first game, mm-hmm. right? And so it may add a bit more a bit more drama. But I also want to let it play out for a few years and then see if some competitive like elite curlers start to kind of like province hunt for an auto berth, and then maybe that also is another way to kind of <laughs> raise the standard. Or if somewhere like uh, somewhere like uh, Nunavut kind of poaches a really good curler to be there to be there out of province guy right so maybe let it run a couple of years maybe let it run the quad and then see see if, if there's other options on the table yeah it'll be interesting to see if you know rising if a rising tide raises or yeah rising tide raises all boats right hopefully those other provinces produce you know, top-notch curlers who can get like even UConn sent Thomas Scoffin, who's a pretty good, pretty good curler, and won a couple games there this year. Yeah, yeah, and then I mean, this guy—you know—what comes out does someone like Greg Smith become like a powerhouse out of Newfoundland and eventually kind of you know get, getting a couple of chances with mm-hmm. Gushu being Team Canada for a few years? Does someone like that then get a chance to raise their game, get invited to Spiels? Like, there's all there is a developmental aspect to the teams at the lower end of the pools, yeah. also, right? So. Worth thinking about there, I think. 
Yep. So Gushu will be Gushu will come to Vegas again for 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 Worlds. Uh, do you see? You know, so we we talk about grassroots growth in the United States. You know, is another way to do that bringing in these top-notch uh, events? Like, do you see the WCF coming back to the U.S., maybe not necessarily to Vegas, but do you see them bringing Worlds back to the U.S. soon? And do you think a Grand Slam event would work in the United States? Uh, I think so. All right. On, on the WCF events, I think WCF would love to have more events in the U.S. I think the issue is just um, venues, people willing to host, ticket sales, all that kind of stuff. Uh one WCF official joked to me that actually China, if they could have their way, would like all of the events held in China all the time. So I think the other thing to keep in mind is as the U.S. is rising, China is also rising too. And if you get if you get like a, a Chinese gold medal, they just won in the Paralympics. But if you get a Chinese gold medal uh, in the Olympics and it kind of gets big TV coverage in China, that's mm-hmm. that's the other kind of sleeping dragon, if you will, of, of world curling. But in terms of like a U.S. event, sure. I mean, I think... I think the the format in the U.S. is to try to do something splashy like the Vegas event. Personally, I like yeah. to at some point see something big held in the Twin Cities because that's the, kind of the mecca of U.S. curling, and uh, you should have something. That's where you're going to have. Yeah, that's where you're going to have the most curling fans, and you. Re- I mean, and with the Twin Cities, you have more venues um, capable of hosting a a ice based uh, sport. If you try to take it, like if you wanted to make, in, in the U.S., if you're going to make the big splash, you have to go to New York City because if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. Yeah. Uh, so the big, the biggest splash in the U.S. would be to do something in like Madison Square Garden. Obviously, you can't do a GSOC event there because you're not going to, even if you curtained off the upper deck, you're not going to sell, you know, 10,000 tickets uh, and yeah. it's going to look bad there in MSG. But like you don't have places in New York City probably capable of hosting a smaller event you either have to go big or go home but if you go to the twin cities you have everywhere from the excel center to that 3,000 seat venue that uh the university of minnesota just built for their women's team so you have more options in the twin cities and you have more curling fans um but how do you i mean how do you make another splash in the u.s do you bring worlds back does nbc and nike and the usca get together to have their own big money spiel similar to what they've tried to do with the u.s open of curling to get more international stars in the u.s i think if they could build off one of those events so i think if they made the u.s open of curling and kind of got some television package with it that Mm. might be one option uh, I mean, what I'm not in the U.S. anymore. So, what right now is actually televised on cable, curling wise? Uh, curling wise, uh, nothing. Uh, really, it's just that curling night in America uh, taped event that they do. Um, and even you know, they get they had basically it's it's usually Japan, China, and Scotland in the U.S. and they do round robins, and it's you know. They sell it to U.S. fans as this is Scotland, this is China, this is Japan. It's usually not. It's usually their B teams too. Yeah. Um, to me, you have to get a team that is Team Canada because that's. I mean, that's how you build. That's how you build international hockey in the U.S. Is you pitch it as this is Team USA, this is Team Canada, and they're playing each other. So you kind of have to get that going in the U.S. Like, do you do you ever do a event? 
Obviously, the United States would get crushed, but do you ever do an event similar to like the Ryder Cup where you say, this is Team United States, this is Team Canada, and they're going to play each other? Well, I mean, that's kind of what the Continental Cup's supposed to be, right? So Yeah, except you have the U.S. and Canada playing together. Yeah, but I think that could be like... I, I'm, I'm surprised I didn't pick that up as like an event. I, I think some of the prepackaged events with U.S. teams. So maybe if they get A to try to sell the Continental Cup as... An mm-hmm. event that might be one because the U.S. like the, the whatever Team North America normally wins that, and you can always kind of they always do pepper the Americans in with the Canadians, so it's kind of an interesting angle there. I think trying to gr- they throw us a they throw us a bone at the uh, at the Continental. Cup. Well, I mean, there's the two years where it was they decided it was going to be Team Canada only, and one year Europe and one year the Worlds or something, and like where the yeah. U.S. wasn't in, and like those weren't competitive, right? Like the Team Canada just just rolled it might be a bit closer now but uh it was not like they had to go back to bringing the americans in to kind of create parody again which is kind of a bit funny uh but i don't know like to me i i think getting tv coverage of existing events is probably better than trying to create make for tv events right so Mm -hmm. uh the key to me would just be trying to get the closing weekend of the u.s national championship Right, like if you get that, yeah. and that's one way to sell stars, and and you know you're still getting a pretty high standard of play, and you know maybe add, like to me if you're gonna make a made for TV package, maybe do a made for TV package leading up to it, maybe a, a midweek hour show, and then show the the semifinal and final games live. Yeah, which they did. I think I think they did that for a couple years. A few. I think I remember watching Brady Clark win live on. NBC Sports Network one year. I think it was the year that that you and I were in a bond spiel in Dallas in between games. We were watching Brady Clark win Nationals. Yeah, and that's like that's kind of what you got to do, right? Is you got to get a network that's willing to to just roll the dice on that <laughs> and just kind of make some make it make an event like that fly, or the U.S. Open maybe. Um, there, there's this new yeah. thing that World Curling Federation's doing that I, I haven't really, I've just read the press release. I'm not really sure how it's going to be set up, but they're calling it the World Series of Curling. And they're having an event in each zone. And my hopes they actually put the America's event in the U.S., not in Canada, because Canada's really saturated right now. But if you can get something like that in the U.S. and then get TV coverage to go with that, that could be a kind of a breakthrough thing. That would be that would be nice, and that would be, the Twin Cities. I think would be a good landing spot. Yeah, for that as well. So as as we're taking advantage of this gold medal, and we're growing the game, and we're thinking of ways to grow the game. Really, the best way is at the grassroots level, and that that's at the individual curling clubs. I know it it it's interesting because the Olympics kind of happens kind of toward the end of the curling season so when you when you're wanting to take advantage of an olympic quad if you're a curling club you're having to stay open a lot later than you usually would because your learn to curls are starting when you would usually be taking your ice out or thinking about taking your ice out um arena clubs like ours it's a little different because usually the spring and summer is when we can get ice for cheap so that's when we're playing anyway Uh, so we're taking advantage of that we're running We've sold out, 
almost 15 learn to curls. Oh, nice. I think we had, yeah. yeah, we've, yeah, we're up to over 700 signed up for learn to curls and it looks like we're going to sell out three beginner leagues. So selling out three beginner leagues, that's 96 people signed up for a beginner league. Um, wow. you know, what's, I know when we're when we're teaching learn to curls, our goal with those we try to keep it affordable. Um, you want it to be, I think you want it to be twenty to twenty five dollars. I think that that's a commitment that people, because if you make it for free, you're gonna get a lot of people who are bucket listers and they're gonna try it and they're gonna have no interest in in going forward and joining the club. But if you, if you get them to, to have a little bit of a financial commitment, that $20 though, you're going to cut those people out. And the people who come are going to be people more likely to join a beginner league. And then beginner league, um, we're making it short four to six weeks, about 70 to a hundred dollars. Uh, and again, just affordable enough, but just enough that there's a financial commitment that these are people who might become full-time members of the league. Um, what I wanted to ask, since you coach in England, um, when you're doing a learn to curl, what are what are some things that you're doing that can keep people involved, um, get them and and get them learning quickly to where they might be willing to more willing to join a league? So, are your learn to curls just one drop-in kind of session? Um, so we it's a you get two hours and an hour and a half of that is on ice. So we have 30 minute classroom session and then an hour and a half on ice. Yeah. Uh, that's a pretty good format. I mean, I think this, so for like a standard first time, come out and try it. I think the, the program's pretty much the same everywhere I've been, right? Is mm -hmm. some very basic instruction and try to get them playing something that looks like a curling game as quickly as possible. That's basically the We goal. don't, Okay. We don't even bother with games, actually. We just get it to where they can throw the rock and they can sweep it, and then we just go full-length throws. Because um, we, we do six people per house, because that's about how many one instructor can handle yeah. and teach them efficiently. So you want to get them able to throw a rock, able to put the correct handle on it, and able to sweep a rock in about 15 to 25 minutes. Yeah. And then an hour, and then you combine each side and you just do full length throws and you walk down throw them back walk down throw them back and we don't even worry about playing a full game but we tell them you know if you sign up for the beginner league we're gonna you know put you in teams of four it's gonna be full curling game you're gonna be going against people who have the same amount of experience that you do but you'll have people there instructing and in, in helping you get better yeah so so yeah that sounds good like so to my mind most club who are doing these things their mistake is they overcoach at the beginning level like they, they're too worried about mm -hmm. giving someone the perfect technique uh like perfect anything right the, the key is just to get them trying it and seeing if they like it ideally if you have one or two yep. coaches that are kind of good at, at working with novices and correcting pretty basic faults so they can get the stone going uh it it, it helps but really apart from the people that really struggle at the get-go you just want to get people throwing the stones, sweeping a bit, having a bit of fun. Because if you overcoach, it just becomes like you're in school, which is boring, right? So that to me is like the first tip is don't overcoach. Just get them going. Uh, and the second thing is don't really sweat the attrition rate, right? Like, like uh, I remember Ron Common, who was one of the guys who helped us set up the Oklahoma Curling Club. His line to me was always, 
they're figuring out if they want to do this. He's whenever I kind of obsess about that early on, and that's that's totally true. Is that mm-hmm. they're going through a process of first of all, do they want to try it, and that's maybe that, and then maybe not not everyone, not probably not even half, are going to want to become full time curlers. So just just even if they've done it once, go to their friends and say, hey, I tried this curling thing, and they have a positive experience. That's good advertising for your club. So that's the kind of other thing to keep in mind is make sure they have a good experience overall from start to finish and, and don't obsess with them becoming a, uh, a club member. Yeah, I just the, I kind of stress to them, you know, you're one, one of the things I stress uh, is, is safety. Yes, uh, cause safety we, is key. <laughs> you know, not running on the ice, not chasing after stones. Um, but then also, like, I, I, I try to kind of relate to them um, and bring up thing. you know, if you're having trouble doing this, you know, here's what I had trouble with when, when I first started. Here are the things that I did in the hack um, and just in my head to kind of correct myself. I think that, you know, relating – they kind of forget, okay, this person who's showing me how to curl, you know, they don't really think, oh, this person started just like I did. They've just been good for, you know, however long that they've been been curling. But letting them know, look, I struggled a lot when I started too, that kind of helps. Yeah, I think that, and I think, I think selling the relatability aspect too. I think most people come after an Olympics, they've seen it on TV and they think I can do that. And so A, reinforcing that, like another bad habit I've seen is people say, oh, well, there's no chance you could become like John Schuster, right? And then you've just pissed on their Olympic dream, right? Like, <laughs> like you know and I know how much work it takes to get to the Olympics. And, you know, 99.9% of people who walk into the door of a learn to curl are never going to get there. But don't kill their dream for them. Like, sell the dream. Because that's like, step one is this. I remember uh, Judy Willingham at Dallas. Her line was always, welcome to the first step on your Olympic dream. Right, people like that. Right, they like, I'm going to uh, steal that. Oh, absolutely, steal that. Right, I'm like, <laughs> play that up because that's that's why I think a lot of people after an Olympics are there. Is you know they're like they get into it. They say, well, I, I can't do. I'm 24. I can't do freestyle skiing. That's ridiculous. But curling, maybe I could do that. Right, and and they'll find their level eventually. And some of them will turn into competitive curlers. Right, but even if most don't, at least they, they kind of got a chance to get a taste of, of feeling that way for a little bit. So I wouldn't say, I'd say the other ones, like don't piss on their dream, play it up. And what's a, what, what do you think's a good conversion rate? About 10% from a learn to curl to, you know, getting people from, getting people from learn to curl to beginner league is about 10% a good conversion rate. Yeah, I'd say that. that that's over time. I think that's been pretty, pretty standard. Uh, about 10%. And then I think if you can get them to sign up for either a beginner league or like here, we're doing a four week learn to curl class and it's clearly structured. So my sense is if someone's going to commit four weeks to a class to learning something, they're a bit more committed. So if you can get 10% out of a learn to curl, so you got 96 signed up for your beginner league. You're saying, yeah, right. I will, let's set a bet. Or close. Well, hopefully, hopefully by hopefully the third beginner league that we added sells out. We had two sell out already. That's sixty four, and I think we're about halfway there on the on the third beginner 64. league. Sixty four. I bet you. So if we wind up, so if we wind up with ninety six, yeah. how many do you think join the club? Mm, I bet you forty to fifty. I bet you your membership will grow by forty to fifty next year. For the first year, and then just like 
just like every other quad, it slowly decreases and then you try to build back up after the next yeah. Olympics or... I mean, I, I do think that's the area that clubs really... And we can maybe talk about that as the podcast kind of moves forward. But I, I, I think, especially from Oklahoma, I learned a fair bit just from that experience that, that really the trick is not recruitment. Like in some ways, as long as, you know... Uh, when I was starting the club with the others at the back of 2010, they, they were and people were sending me checks for $200 to try curling. They never I was one it. of them. I was like, <laughs> this is ridiculous. Like you're just sending 200 bucks to some guy you don't know to his house. You've never touched a stone in your life. Like you, you basically have to be an idiot to not recruit curlers during an Olympic cycle. The real challenge mm-hmm. for clubs is how do you keep people engaged and how do you keep recruiting outside of that cycle like I, I think you still got a little bit of an effect or bump in the autumn like because it's still kind of in the back of people's minds but it's what do you do two to three years out in some ways the worst is the autumn before an olympics because it's the furthest yeah. from the last olympics that's often when curling clubs reach their kind of low point for membership for that cycle i will that that's a that's a topic for a future podcast so we'll you know we'll we'll will make people subscribe uh, to, to hear about that later. Um, I do want to give everyone who bothered to listen to us ramble on about curling for, for nearly an hour, a, uh, a, a you know kind of a cherry here at the end. Uh, and inspired by a, a conversation that Jonathan and I had earlier this week, we kind of didn't get it get into it in this podcast. We may get into it uh, later. Um, we were talking about the team changes. Uh, a lot of you know now that the Olympic quad is over, a lot of the high-end Canadian teams are are changing their lineups, uh, getting together to roll for the next uh, four years. And one of the things we talked about was I was kind of surprised that Team Brad Jacobs, which won the 2014 Olympic gold medal, that they were staying together. And I personally thought that there was a chance that. Uh, Ryan Fry would take a, who was the third for Team Jacobs, would take a step back from from competitive curling. And one of the points I had was, Ryan Fry is almost as old as Jamie Cooey. He's only a few months younger than him. Um, you look at the two. Uh, there's a if, if you follow competitive high end curling, um, you know why that's funny. Uh, Jamie Cooey. Jamie Cooey is one of my heroes, but um, he's one of those everyday people who are who are heroes of of people like me who get out at the club level and curl. And Ryan Fry is one of the people who has kind of embraced um, the fit to curl mantra and and hit hits the gym a lot. Um, and the fa- and so it's kind of surprising that he's almost as old as Jamie. So in honor of that, I have a game for Jonathan. Uh, Jonathan, I have five names here for you, and after I give you this name, I want I have you have to get three out of five to win. I don't. I will decide later right. w- what you would win if you win. Um, so I've got five names here. I want you to tell me if Jamie Cooey is younger than or older than the five people I mentioned. All right. All right. First up, is Jamie Cooey older than or younger than Tom Brady? Uh, uh, younger than Tom Brady. You're right. He is younger than Tom Brady by three months. Oh, <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. 
Next up, is Jamie Cooey older than or younger than John Cena? Uh, jeez. Because John Cena just had his 40th birthday. Because I saw on Instagram he did deadlifts for his 40th birthday. So I'm going to say, and shoot, he is, I'm saying John Cena is older than Jamie Cooey. You are correct. Jeez. Jamie Cooey is younger than John Cena. You're two for All two. Right. John Cena's got six months on Jamie Guys, Cooey. Do you know what John Cena did for his 40th birthday? Uh, no. He deadlifted 400 pounds. <laughs> <laughs> I think I could deadlift 40 pounds. Yeah. I'll do. I'm. 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 Uh. I'll turn. I'll turn 35 here in December. I will. Die, I promise you. I will deadlift 35 pounds 35, for my 35th birthday. That's not even the bar, dude. Birthday. The bar is for <laughs> I will find the I will find a pounds. bar that I can yeah, I will find a bar that I can deadlift. You can deadlift uh, the PVC type. Thirty five pounds. <laughs> All right, well, we've got three more, but if you get one more we'll win. Now I'm kinda of rooting for you to go five for five. All right. Uh all right. Is Jamie Cooey older than or younger than Kanye West? Oh jeez. Oh crap. How old's Kanye? I'm going to say older than Kanye. Jamie Cooey is younger oh, than Kanye oh, West. How old is Kanye? Younger by five oh, months. Geez. All right. <laughs> All right. Next up. Is Jamie Cooey older than or younger than Roberto Luongo? Jeez, oh, oh man, these are tough. These are, they're all like, okay. <laughs> they're not supposed to be. I know. To be. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> the problem is I haven't thought about Roberto Luongo in like a decade, so. That's because that's because he signed with the Panthers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, <laughs> is he still in the league or not? Yeah, no, he is still in the league. He's he is the he is Florida's starting goaltender, and he's one right. of the reasons that they may make it to the all playoffs. Right. That's how close I'm following the NHL these days. All right, I will say. Luongo is older. Incorrect. Oh. Jamie Cooey is older than Roberto Luongo by a year and a half. Ah, okay. All right. So after starting out 2-0, and oh, you are now 2-2. Two and two. you got to get this one right. Pressure's on. Is Jamie Cooey older than or younger than Kobe Bryant? When did Kobe retire? Uh, two seasons ago. All right, two I'm gonna say he's ago. older than Kobe. You did it, oh. Jamie Cooey, older than Kobe yeah, Bryant right. by ten months. <laughs> <laughs> you did it. Right. You rescued. You rescued victory uh, from the jaws of defeat. We'll figure out what you win later. All right. Um. All right. So you've you've won the inaugural Rocks Across the Pond uh podcast contest. Um, we're over and I think we're coming up on an hour so i think that's enough curling talk uh for any sane person to listen to so um thank you jonathan for for starting this journey with us hopefully people find it interesting hopefully we find interesting things to talk about in the future uh you can find us on soundcloud uh you can find us on twitter at curling podcasts which is pretty easy find us on soundcloud at rocks across the pond um Anything you want? Any parting uh, words of wisdom from you? Uh, have fun at your learn to curls. That's uh, 
that's the big thing right now. I think the, the biggest thing right now for the end of the season, if you're a kind of grassroots curler, is you know help new people uh, get into the sport and just remember what it was like when you were starting out. So keep that in mind when you're meeting uh, beginner curlers. All right. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you next time. Yeah. Bye. Never, 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 never.